Hey everybody, welcome back to my channel. Thanks so much for tuning in. My name is Dana Trupiana, and I cover infamous gangsters every week in a true crime-like format. My show, Mob Times, comes out every Tuesday morning at 10 a.m. Well, it's Tuesday, it's 10 a.m., so here I am. If you're new here, welcome. If you've been here before, you guys already know how much I love and appreciate you, and I appreciate all your support, and I don't care how many times somebody tells me, I am not going to stop telling you every single episode. I have to, like, sit on my hands because I raised my chair up, so I'm a little higher, so my hands are getting caught in the camera, and it's making it defocus, and it's really bad. So we are on part two of Albert Anastasia, and honestly, I did not get through half of what I wanted to get through in part one. So we're going to try to power through some information on this episode, because by the time I was done filming the other day, first of all, it was five o'clock in the morning. Second of all, I was on the 13th slide of information out of 45 slides. And I'm telling you, these slides that have the information, it is packed. It's not like a script, but it's just like, okay, make sure you say this and this and this. Like, he was born in this year, and I have to, like, see that and make sure that it gets said. And it's just 13 out of 49 is really bad when I had two hours of films done. So I'm just like, I'm screwed if I go at that same pace. So we are going to just power through. We're going to really, really fast. And I apologize if my camera keeps going in and out of focus. I don't know what to do with my hands. Okay. It's a, it's a real problem. Okay. So let's not get into any life updates or anything. Let's just go get into this. Okay. So when we ended episode one, we were talking about Anastasia being given the position of figuring out how to take Dewey out. I had told you about how Dewey had caught wind that his murder was being talked about, the idea was being tossed around, and he begrudgingly accepted a bodyguard because he heard that there was a $25,000 bounty on his head. So now he's walking around, he has a bodyguard. Now Anastasia, being the clever little murderer he is, he is given the task to figure out how to kill Dewey and not bring the entire mafia down with him. And he is going to do this to the best of his abilities. Anastasia takes the time and he learns every single thing there is to know about Dewey. He watches him from a distance and then slowly, 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 he withers his way closer and closer to Dewey. He grabs one of his sons and that allowed him to move in a lot closer because a kid, it drags the attention away. Nobody's looking at the father, they're looking at the kid. So he grabs his son, he throws his son on a tricycle, and while his son is riding the tricycle around, diverting attention, he is able to get pretty much next to Dewey, and Dewey and his bodyguards never notice his presence. Never once did they notice the man that was standing beside the little kid, the little cute kid that's riding around on his tricycle. And he stood next to Dewey every morning when he came out of his apartment building for four consecutive days. So given the fact that Anastasia was able to get so close that he's literally standing next to Dewey every single day for four days in a row, watching his every move and nobody is noticing his presence, he is able to get a shit ton of information about Dewey. He is able to gather that Dewey leaves for work every day around eight o'clock in the morning. 
He stops at a pharmacy to use a payphone to make any important calls that need to be made because he doesn't want his wife to hear what he's talking about. And he doesn't want to risk the fact that his phones might be tapped. He worries that the mafia is going to turn around and use his own tricks against him and tap his phone. So now he's nervous to use his own phone. So he is going to the pharmacy at his corner to use the payphone in the pharmacy to make important phone calls into the office every single morning. He would leave at 8 a.m. He would get to the pharmacy, use the payphone to make a call, call his office, talk to them about whatever's going on, whether it was important or not. He made that phone call at the pharmacy every single day. And Anastasia noticed something interesting. He made the phone call from the pharmacy, but he went into the pharmacy to make the phone call and his bodyguards waited outside. Who knows, maybe the bodyguards were like smoking a cigarette while he was inside making the phone call. They were watching the street. I don't know. They didn't go inside the pharmacy. Dewey went inside the pharmacy by himself and the bodyguards were outside. So now Anastasia achieves his goal. He wants to devise a plan where he could take out Dewey and it's not going to come right back on the mafia. It's not going to make prosecutors and everybody turn around and go after the entire mafia. It could look like it could be whoever. He puts together a plan where he is going to enter the drugstore before Dewey or anybody gets there. He is going to do whatever he's going to do. He's going to evade interest. Nobody is going to be interested at the fact that he is in this pharmacy. Now, as I said, Dewey comes into the pharmacy by himself. His bodyguards wait out on the street. So Anastasia is going to kill Dewey while he makes his morning phone call. He plans to kill the pharmacist because obviously the pharmacist is going to get a good look at his face and he's going to be able to tell that Anastasia is mafia. There is no hiding the fact that Anastasia is full-blown Italian. He even has like a heavy accent, so the pharmacist is going to know. So he's going to have to take the pharmacist out. This is the 1930s. There's no, you know, surveillance footage or whatever. Pretty easy. So kill Dewey while he's on his morning phone call. Kill the pharmacist. And now none of this is going to arouse any interest from the bodyguards that are waiting outside because obviously he has a silencer on the weapon that he's using. So he's able to take out both Dewey and the pharmacist with a silencer. Bodyguards never suspect a thing. They're just sitting around minding their own business watching the street. Now Anastasia's plan is to walk out of the pharmacy and just act like any other dude. He's not going to run. He's just going to walk out. The bodyguards won't even pay attention to him because there's nothing that they're worried about. They're not watching out for anything crazy. He just walks out. And by the time he turns the corner, he's going to jump into a getaway car. And then by then, maybe the bodyguards will catch on that, uh, I don't know, their person that they're watching is dead in that pharmacy. Anastasia feels like this plan is almost foolproof. So now Anastasia brings this plan to the syndicate. And even though everybody involved acknowledges that this is an airtight plan, this will work. There's no question of whether this plan is going to work or not. It will work. But a lot of the syndicate members still remain doubtful. There really was only one person in the entire group, Gura Shapiro, who sided with Schultz and agreed that this plan should be implemented. They should murder this prosecutor who's taking these guys down one by one. Even if it is a solid plan. And even if all the men know that this needs to be done, the fact that it was Schultz that was taking it to them made the whole syndicate doubt it even more. 
Schultz was almost unanimously viewed as a cowboy, someone who couldn't be relied on or trusted. And to be honest, they didn't really want Schultz out of the doghouse with Dewey. Like, they wanted Schultz to be on Dewey's radar. I'm gonna go over the whole thing with Schultz, so this is all gonna be put together, so just give me one minute. We are gonna go through Schultz. But he had been forced to take a step back from his business interests. And when he was forced to take a step back, his interests had been divided among the men sitting in that room. So these guys are literally profiting from Schultz not being able to carry out his business the way that he normally does. So these guys don't want to give Schultz his business back. They want to continue making the extra money that they're making from Schultz not being able to complete his business the way that he usually does. So... Yeah, they all want Dewey gone. But do they want to take out Dewey because of Schultz? Do they want to take him out and then give Schultz his business back? No, they don't. And I think that if this was for anybody else in the world, it would have been a whole different situation. But because it's Schultz taking this to them, and because if they take out Dewey, they're going to have to give Schultz his business back, That is making a significant difference in the decision that they make. They gave Schultz the bad news that they were going to rule against him. They were not going to authorize the murder of Dewey. It was too high risk. There were too many consequences from both the government and the general public. It's just a really bad move, and they knew it. When they went to Schultz and told him what their decision was, he blew a freaking head gasket, as they had expected. They expected him to blow a head gasket. He's this, like, you know, wild cowboy that can't be tamed. No part of them was like, oh, yeah, he'll take this like a champ. Like, no, they knew he was going to lose his shit. So, as they expected, he loses his shit. He walks out of the room, and he, as he's walking out, he's like, fuck you guys. I don't care what you say. I'm taking out Dewey. As Schultz walked out of the room and said, like, oh, I'm taking him out, as soon as he walked out of the room, the syndicate decided that Schultz had to go because he couldn't be allowed to enact any plan against Dewey because if he went off on his own and killed Dewey, whether they told him he could or not, that was still going to blow back against them. So they're like, whatever, if this guy's determined to take Dewey out and that's going to blow back on us, we got to take out Schultz. Emmanuel Mendy Weiss and Charles the Bug Workman, two members of Murder Incorporated, found Schultz at the Palace Chop House in Newark, New Jersey on October 24th, 1935. If you didn't infer from the name, the Palace Chop House is a restaurant. He found him hanging out and spending time with his associates, Otto Berman, Abe Landau, and Lulu Rosecrantz. These guys lit up the entire restaurant and shot every single person that was there. Everybody that was there did live. They all got hit multiple times. They did live, and they were all transferred to hospitals. But everybody but Schultz would die shortly after the shooting. So, like, they lived long enough to make it to the hospital to be pronounced dead there. Schultz was able to hold on to life a little bit longer. And if you watched my Stephanie St. Clair video, you know what happens next. Now, Weiss and Workman are the ones that took out Schultz and his crew. In an effort to get away from the scene, Weiss takes off and he hops into the getaway car driven by Seymour, Piggy, Schechter, and they freaking left Workman behind. Now, Workman is 
pissed. He's mad mad. He just got left behind. The getaway car left him after a murder. And he ends up having to walk all the way back to Brooklyn from New Jersey. That is a 24-mile walk. Today, in a modern-day car with modern-day roads and an Uber or a taxi, it would take 34 minutes to get from one place to the other. And this man was forced to walk it off. That freaking sucks. Now, as anybody who has ever served will tell you, never leave a fallen comrade is one of the top rules of warfare. Everybody knows it. When Workman got back, he filed a grievance with the syndicate because these guys left him behind. They left a fallen comrade and they left him on his own. He could have gotten arrested. He could have freaking died halfway. There is no telling what could have happened to him. So he's like, yeah, I got beef with the fact that they just left me there. And he files an official grievance. According to Weiss, the reason that he left Workman there is because when he turned back to yell to Workman that they had to leave, Workman was rifling through Schultz's pockets and he's trying to steal the money out of Schultz's wallet. The hit was over. They had never discussed staying back to try to get money at the crime scene and wasting time to just get money. Like, that's not what this was about. And Weiss is like, yeah, I'm sitting there and I'm screaming at him like, yo, we got to go. We got to go. And freaking Workman is sitting there rifling through Schultz's pockets. Like, that is not what this was about. So I was out. I left. I wasn't about to sit around and wait for him to be done putzing around and fucking wasting time. I'm out. According to Workman, he wasn't rifling through Schultz's pockets. He turned back because he saw that Schultz wasn't dead yet, and he turned back so that he could finish the job. Now, Workman is so mad. Like, he can't just keep working with Weiss. That's not an option. He's pissed, and he is not getting over it anytime soon. So Buchalter, Louis Lepke Buchalter, he sends Workman to Florida for a vacation. He's like, all right, listen, take a vacation, cool down, rent a yacht, get some honeys, do what you got to do, re freaking lax, my dude. Like, we'll work it out. Just you go. You have a good time. We'll take care of it. Eventually, Workman was arrested for vagrancy in Brighton Beach, which pretty much was just a bullshit charge to get him in jail so that they could put together the real case that they were building against him. They charged Workman with the murder of Dutch Schultz, for which he would be found guilty and spend 23 years in prison. I don't know what proof they used against him I don't know how they proved that it was him, but I would imagine it had something to do with the fact that he was left behind at the scene. And to be perfectly honest, I can't even say like, oh, well, if he was rifling through Dutch Schultz's pockets, then they should have. Like, no, you do not leave somebody at the scene, bro. It doesn't matter what they're doing. You don't go without them. Weiss would also later be found guilty. Again, in one minute, we're going to go over it. This is all so closely associated, so there's things that we're going to be jumping back and forth for the next few minutes, but Weiss is also going to be found guilty of something, and he is also going to go to jail for murder. So there really is no pretty ending for any of these guys. So as I've mentioned a few times, I talked a lot about Dutch Schultz in my video about Stephanie St. Clair. So if you haven't seen that episode, you really should go take a look 
and see how Dutch Schultz was all wrapped up with her. And I'm not going to talk about that in this video. There's a lot of separate stuff that had to do with Stephanie St. Clair and Dutch Schultz together. But I've even got like two whole chapters named for Schultz in there. So if you don't feel like watching the whole Stephanie St. Clair episode, maybe just go watch and skip to the chapters in the description and skip right to see what's going on with Schultz and see his whole background and everything. But I'm not going to go back over that here because I did go over that in a previous episode. So aside from her, because she really had nothing to do with his death. She didn't order it. She had nothing to do with it. So aside from Stephanie St. Clair, now we're stepping back to when Schultz approached Anastasia and he tells him he wants to kill Dewey. Now, Schultz wants to kill Dewey because he had spent the last two years on trial from government charges from like the federal government because he had been put on trial for tax evasion charges. He spent six months in hiding before finally surrendering, and he was put on trial, all for the first case of tax evasion. He was held in Syracuse in the spring of 1935, and that trial would end in a hung jury. And the second trial, which was held in Malone, New York, would end with him being acquitted after he brilliantly turned the entire town into his best friend. Malone, New York is a small, sleepy town in upstate New York, which made it super easy for Schultz to go in and become friendly with pretty much everybody in the entire town. He went into Malone and he spent thousands of dollars and through crazy block parties, he would send gifts to the kids that were in the hospitals. He would hand out money if anybody needed anything. Everybody in Malone viewed Dutch Schultz as the most charitable, friendly, benevolent person to walk this earth ever. It was no surprise, after all the work he had put in in turning everybody in Malone into his friends, that when it came time to put a jury together in this very small town, his hard work paid off, and he was acquitted. When the jury read the verdict of not guilty, the judge replied, It will be apparent to all who have followed the evidence of this case that you have reached a verdict based not on the evidence, but on some other reason. And that other reason is they liked him. Now, when this all goes down, that is when Dewey starts coming after him more directly. Dutch Schultz had been behind bars for tax evasion, but that was the feds going after him. Now that the feds had failed, Dewey is like, all right, all right, all right, I guess I gotta do this myself. And Dewey sets his sights on getting charges against Schultz on the state side of things. This was one of those, if you need something done right, you gotta do it yourself kind of things for Dewey. He was going after him for his illegal policy racket that he had been running in Harlem and for the extortion and strong arm tactics that he used to make restaurant owners and workers buy alcohol from him in his bootlegging business. So the extortion racket we know is all wrapped up in that stuff going on with Stephanie St. Clair. Strong arm tactics, that's just what every mafia guy does. So now at this point, Schultz has just gone through the first trial, which ended with a hung jury. He went through the second trial, which he was acquitted. So now he's a free man. Dewey is hot on his trail, but he has no official charges against him right now. The only problem is he is flat broke. He had to pay for his defense on these tax evasion charges. Now he comes back and he has no charges and everything. But now all of his men are leaving him because there's an increased cost 
or a decreased commission for working with Schultz. All the men that are running his rackets, they're having decreased commissions from working with him. He pretty much tells everybody that's running his rackets that the difference between what they're getting now and what they used to get is being donated to the Arthur Flegenheimer Defense Fund. And obviously, everybody who hears this bogus explanation is pissed as hell. Because they could go work for the guy down the block and make that extra money. They don't want to donate to the Arthur Flegenheimer Defense Fund. And they're pissed because they're out there. They're running these rackets. They're doing their job. Okay, so when we left off the last time that I was here two minutes ago for you, we were talking about the Arthur Flegenheimer Defense Fund, which is what Dutch Schultz would tell people they were paying into when they would start asking about why they were making less money. So let's say usually as a runner for Dutch Schultz running around in Harlem and, you know, running numbers and doing all this stuff. Let's say typically while you're doing that, you have to kick up 10 percent. Now it gets increased to 15 percent. And all of his runners are like, wait, what the hell? Why am I paying 15%? And he says, oh, well, it's because you're paying into the Arthur Flegenheimer Defense Fund. And he gets like offended when anybody is like, uh, I don't care about the Arthur Flegenheimer Defense Fund. Like, I need to put food on the table for my family. I don't care about your defense fund. But Schultz is still like, what the fuck? Like, you guys should care about paying for my defense fund. I'm not like decreasing it. You're going to help me pay for this lawyer. At the end, all of the runners decide that they are going to protest and they declare a strike. Every single one of Dutch's runners refused to continue working for him. And this man still sticks to his guns. It wasn't until he fully ran out of money. Like, he saw this coming for a long time. But it wasn't until he had $1 left in his wallet, and after having no runners left working for him anymore, that he backed down and he met the demands of his runners. So he meets their demands, but honestly, at this point, the damage is done. He has irreparably damaged the relationship between himself and his employees. And as much as they were on strike and they were hurting his wallet, that's hurting their wallets too. So at the end of the day, the people that are working for him, they're going to have some animosity against Schultz because not only was he collecting more money before they went on strike, but they're going to blame him for every single day that they're on strike and they're not making money. So, you know, he comes down and says, okay, okay, you know, you guys win. You could pay me the 10% now instead of the 15. But these guys are all like, okay, cool. You met our demands. But at the end of the day, I haven't gotten a full paycheck in months. And I don't really care about you. I don't care about your drama or your issues or the fact that you keep getting caught. I am broke now because of what you did. So his top guys, his top runners, the ones that were making the most amount of money, when Dutch Schultz put them out of business for who even knows how long, all of the top guys decided to go and meet with Lucky Luciano because Lucky Luciano is not only the head of the Italian mafia, he's also the head of the syndicate. So now all his runners have brought this issue to Lucky Luciano and they're like, hey, like, I know that Dutch Schultz works for you. He may not be in the Italian mafia, but he is a member of the syndicate. You're the leader of the syndicate. Please help. Once the issue is brought to Lucky Luciano, Luciano puts a plan in place 
And pretty much what his plan is, is just take control of all of Schultz's activities and repair the damage. So Schultz has all of this shit going on. He's flat broke because he just fought two cases against the government. Dewey's now coming after him to arrest him again, now on the state side of things. And everything is just piling up. He knows that the two charges that came from the federal government, that was Dewey's doing too. Dewey definitely nudged that file onto the federal government's desk. And it all just builds and builds. And now Schultz needs an outlet because he just screwed over all the people that worked for him. Lucky Luciano took over his operations. He has no money. And where does he place the blame? On himself for doing all this shady shit that keeps getting him jammed up? No, the answer is he places the blame on Dewey. So because this is all Dewey's fault, he goes to the commission and asks the commission for permission to take out Dewey. And this is where we were talking about earlier, where I told you that Schultz had brought it before the commission saying, hey, I want to take out Dewey. This is where that goes in. So this is why Schultz wanted to take Dewey out. So after all that went on, where Anastasia followed Dewey, figured out how he could assassinate him, at the end of the day, Dutch Schultz is told, no, you cannot take Dewey out. They came to a unanimous decision. They decided, no, it's too risky. We're not doing it. He's told it'll bring too much heat down on the mafia and their criminal organization as a whole, and he just has to deal with it. When he's told no, he does know that Dewey is getting close. He's going to jail any day now, and it's all Dewey's fault. So when the commission tells him, no, you're not allowed to take out Dewey, Schultz tells the commission to go fuck themselves. He says that he's going to do it anyway, and the commission, pretty much, the commission could go kick rocks. He does not care what they have to say about it. He's going to do what he's going to do. Mind your fucking business. I'm doing it. Now, while it does feel like a pity party for Schultz, at the end of the day, Dewey did write in his autobiography that he regarded it as a matter of primary importance to get Dutch Schultz. So Schultz feels like Dewey is out to get him, but in this case, he's not wrong. Dewey is out to get him. But that's his job. And that's what the syndicate and the commission and all the bigger guys, that's what they understand. He's doing his job. He's not coming after you because he has a personal vendetta against you. You're a criminal. He's a cop. He's trying to put you in jail. That's what cops do. So he starts putting a plan in place to take out Dewey aside from the commission, to just do it himself. They won't do it for him. He'll do it for himself. And now, again, remember, the syndicate didn't want to take out Dewey for a few reasons, one of them being that it was too dangerous, it would bring too much heat down on them, blah, blah, blah. But it was also because they wanted his business. They did not want to hand it back. He had a lucrative business going on, and they had been handed the keys to the kingdom, and they didn't want to give the keys back. So when the syndicate gets word like, okay, this is serious, he really is going to take out Dewey. Like, this is not a drill. He's going to do it. And when he does it, it's going to come back on us. Even if we told him no and he went and did it anyway, it's coming back on us. And we're not going to let that happen. On October 23rd, 1935, Schultz was at the Palace Chop House and he's just like chilling with the boys. They're just hanging out. Nothing's awry. They don't know that there's any threat that's against their lives. He gets up and goes to the bathroom, and that's when Mendy Weiss and Charles the Bug Workman walk in and take out the entire place. We've already gone through this, so I'm not going to go through the whole thing again, but in the end, Arthur Fledgenheimer, aka Dutch Schultz, 
Otto Berman, Abe Landau, and Lulu Rosecrantz are all killed. As he laid dying, Workman turned around and he starts going through Schultz's pockets. And that is what ended up having him left at the scene of the crime with a 20 plus mile trek on foot ahead of him. So that, I know that was like a little out of order, but it was hard to put everything into order. So that is the whole Dutch Schultz situation. So Dutch Schultz is dead. Let's move on from him. Now we've got Louis Lepke Buchalter. So let's talk about Buchalter a little bit and some of the crimes that had him ending up where he ended up. So Dewey is coming for Buchalter full steam ahead, and he wants to have him arrested. Buchalter ended up facing three murder charges. While Dewey was looking for him, he pretty much told the public like, hey, I'm seeking Buchalter because he is the king of flower and the king of the crime racket. So pretty much saying like, he's in organized crime and I want him. And I guess he sells a lot of flour. I don't know. One of the three murder charges that are being brought against him is for the murder of Joseph Rosen, a Brooklyn candy store owner. So when Buchalter and Joseph Rosen first meet, Joseph Rosen is working for a trucking company. And at this trucking company, pretty much you have a route that's assigned to you and you get commissions and paid off of this route that you have. Now, Buchalter, he has a union and his union comes in and takes over the truck union that Rosen is working for. So Rosen has a route. He's working for a truck union. Buchalter has a union and his union takes over the truck union that Rosen is working for. And Buchalter ended up putting Rosen out of business when he ordered a truck stoppage to Pennsylvania, which is pretty much all the business that Rosen had brought into the company. In other words, if Buchalter stops the routes that go to Pennsylvania, he's effectively forcing Rosen out of the trucking company. So now Buchalter pretty much exiles Rosen from this trucking company. And I don't know how long he had been working there, but obviously this is how he puts food on the table. And just coming in and kicking him out of the business and making him have no way to make money to support his family, that's going to cause a little anger. And I mean, anybody that's ever owned a company will tell you that sometimes you're going to make people unhappy. But the problem is that Buchalter does not exactly operate under the guise of the law. So he has to try to make as many people happy as possible. So now because Buchalter has to try his best not to piss off people, because as soon as you piss people off, the first thing they're going to do is go jump on the witness stand. So Buchalter is trying not to piss off Rosen. So after he forced him out of the company, Buchalter got Rosen a job at a competitor's company because he's like, all right, listen, I'm sorry that I took away your income source. Here, go work for the competitor and literally got him a job at this competitor's company. The problem is this job only lasted for about eight months before he got fired by the competitor. And that led to him being unemployed for 16 months. Ruben would, from that point forward, would go to Buchalter and complain that he had a family and there's no food on the table for him, his wife, his children, and pretty much tell him, like, yo, you ruined my life. My life is over and it's all your fault. I don't have any money and it's all your fault. And now, because Buchalter is a criminal, he's trying to help this guy so that he isn't the first one on the stand. 
Or maybe because Bucalter just literally feels bad and he's a decent person and he sees this guy that he had to railroad out of the company, but he doesn't want to see anything bad to happen to him. So he's trying to help him. That's definitely a possibility as well. When Dewey first started to investigate Bucalter, and Bucalter's employee is going to him and like, listen, Rosen is desperate. He has nothing to lose. And you have to get him a job. You have to satisfy this man or he's going to talk about some of the illegal shit that he knows happened. In the spring of 1936, Rosen opened a candy store. Presumably, it was fully financed by Bucalter. In June of 1936, apparently Rosen was going around Brownsville and he's like shooting his mouth off, telling everybody in town that he's going to go to Dewey's office himself. And he's going to tell Dewey all this shit about Bucalter. And his reasoning is that Bucalter stepped in and he got him fired from the original job. He got him this other job, but it didn't last. They were against him. He couldn't make it there. Bucalter gave him this candy store to shut him up, but the candy store is doing very badly. He's not making any money there. And it's all Bucalter's fault. So now Max Rubin, an executive board member and a really important person in the union, Local number four was kind of like a go-between between Bucalter and Rosen because Rosen is popping his mouth off. He's talking all this shit. Rosen's not going straight to Bucalter. Bucalter is way too important of a human being to be dealing with this bullshit. So that's what you got guys like Max Rubin for. He's the one that goes and talks to the people that are complaining and anything that is of merit, he brings it to Bucalter. He's the one that went to him and said, hey, listen, Rosen is pretty desperate. He's gonna talk. You might want to do something. So now Max Rubin is sent to Rosen again because there's mutterings that he's gonna go to Dewey and talk. So now Max Rubin hears that Rosen is running around town saying that he's gonna tell on Bucalter. And he goes to Bucalter and tells him this because he's not about to hide this. But he tries to de-escalate the situation. He goes to Bucalter and tells him like, oh, hey, Rosen's running around talking shit, but it's okay. I have a solution. He says, I'm going to get the members of Local 240 and I'm going to get them to make this candy store a place that they regularly shop. I'm going to pick up sales for this guy. I'm going to figure it out so that we can satisfy him and you won't have to do anything about it. I know he's talking shit. Just ignore him. I'll take care of it. I'll get some business for the candy store. No harm, no foul. No one says anything. So Bucalter is like, all right, bet. Like, I don't really care. Do what you got to do. Just make sure Rosen shuts the fuck up because he does not want to see what's going to happen if he opens his mouth. Like, keeps telling people he's going to go to Dewey. That would be a very bad decision. If he does it, things are not going to be good for him or his family or his little kids. Fuck them kids. Fuck that wife. We're taking them all out. Like, don't let me find out this man is sitting in Dewey's office. Do something about it before I have to do something about it. So Max Rubin does this. He goes to Local 240. He tells his guys like, hey, go to this candy store. It's a really good place. Go spend money there. Go support our people. And business starts to pick up for Rosen. But now we come to July of 1936. And Rosen is once again walking around Brownsville, popping his mouth off, saying that he's going to 
going to Dewey's office and he's going to testify against Buchalter. And this time, Buchalter hears this, brings Rosen in, and Rosen has the balls to say it right to Buchalter's face. Like, yeah, fuck you. I'm going to go testify against you. You're fucking me over. It's your fault that my life is terrible. So I'm going to tell on you. So Buchalter is like, I bet. Got it. I heard your, I hear your complaints. I understand what you're saying. He doesn't kill him. You can't just kill someone. Like, it's not that easy. People know that he is going around talking shit about Buchalter. So if this guy turns up dead or just disappears, who do you think they're going to look at first? Especially since this is a small little town. You can't just get rid of people, especially people that are civilians and they're not in organized crime. This dude was just a truck driver and then a candy store owner. So he's not somebody that they can just deal with. This is the type of guy that the police will go after you for. Because if the cops see two gangsters killing each other on the street, they're not going to care that much because it's two gangsters and criminals killing each other. But once you get civilians that are not involved in organized crime and they have a little innocent wife and kids and a super cute sob story to put on the front page of the newspaper, that's what gets the law enforcement to come down on you. So Buchholter's doing everything he can to avoid this. So Buchholter goes to Max Rubin and he tells him, like, Rubin, this dude's once again saying he's going to testify. And Rubin is like, bro, don't worry. He's just upset. He doesn't mean it. Like, calm down. He says dumb shit. He's a dumb human being. Ignore him. I'll handle it. I will take care of this. Don't worry. Don't freak out. It's fine. Now, Rosen's daughter. So now Rosen, I get confused with the Rosen and Rubens. So I don't know if you're getting confused. Max Rubin is the one that works for Buchalter. Rosen is the one who was a truck driver, got fired. Now his life is terrible. He has a candy store, doesn't make any money. He's going to tell him Buchalter. So now Rosen, the truck driver, his daughter, Sylvia Rosen Greenspan, goes to Max Rubin, who works for Buchalter, and she's like, hey, I need you to do me a favor. I need you to visit my dad. He's in a very bad place. He's depressed. He's not doing well mentally. Can you please, please, please just go to him? Talk to him. See if there's any way you can help. Calm him down. Just do something, please. I'm begging you. So Max Rubin receives that and he's like, yeah, this is actually a really good opportunity. I'll go there. I'll talk to him. I'll straighten it out. I'll see if I can calm him down. Maybe we can just squash this whole thing. Before he goes to talk to Rosen, Buchalter hands Rubin $200, which would be about $4,300 today. And he tells him, give this money to Rosen. And now $4,300, this amount of money is a lot back then. Like you hand someone $200, you're setting them up for a while. So Buchalter tells Max Rubin, give this $200 to Rosen and tell Rosen to stay out of town for a while. I have this investigation going on with Dewey. I don't need him popping his mouth off around town. Take the money, take your family, and go stay out of town for a while. And this is a pretty big sign that Buchalter is now feeling Dewey on his tail. He feels that charges are about to be brought up against him, and he's scared of Dewey. So he is trying to remove Rosen from the situation and just get him out of town. He doesn't want him dead, but take your family and go somewhere and stay there and stay away until I tell you you can come back. And pretty much he plans to tell him to come back when the investigation with Dewey is done. So Max Rubin goes to Rosen and gives him the money and tells Rosen, like, hey, listen, here's some money. It's a lot of money. Like, dude has nothing. He's handed $200. It's a lot of money that he's handed. 
And he's like, if I give you this, can you shut the fuck up? Can you go away and stay away and stop making me have to deal with you so often? And Rosen, with the prospect of having this money, is like, oh, hell yes, I will leave. I will go visit my son. He's in Reading, Pennsylvania. I'll take my family. I'm outie. You won't hear from me. I'm sorry to have caused you problems. Yes, daddy. On September 11th, 1936, Bu Coulter goes to Reuben and he is fucking heated. He is mad as hell. Turns out, Rosen took the $200, he went, saw his son in Reading, Pennsylvania, and spent a few days there and came back to town, which is obviously not what he agreed to. He agreed to disappear for a while until this investigation with Dewey was over. But now Buchalter is hearing that Rosen's back in town, he's chilling, but he kept the $200 and that's the problem. He could have said, no, I'm not leaving town, but you can't take the $200, say you're going to leave and then come back two days later. Like that's not okay. The money was supposed to be used to keep him gone for a while. He's not supposed to come back until he's heard from Buchalter. And here he is chilling in Brownsville. And now Buchalter is feeling like he's been double-crossed. He's feeling like he's been betrayed. He paid him. He got ripped off. And now not only is Rosen back in town, but once again, he's going around Brownsville telling everybody he's going to go to Dewey. And it makes sense why Rosen is threatening to go to Dewey. He's telling people in town he's going to go to Dewey because he feels like he has Buchalter on a leash right now. In Rosen's mind, all he has to say is, oh, I'm going to go talk to Dewey. And he's getting handed money. He's getting handed business. Like the people in the union went and shopped at the candy store. Every time he says this, every time he threatens to go to Dewey, he's getting rewarded. So of course he's going to continue to do it. I am certain that there's been at least one or two people along the way that have told him, like, yo, Buchalter's not somebody to play with. Like, this man is fucking serious. You might want to chill. But Rosen hasn't seen any of this. He hasn't been threatened. He hasn't had any negative experience. The only experience he's had is he makes this threat and he gets what he wants. So now he's back in town. He's threatening again to go to Dewey. So now Max Rubin is in the office with Buchalter. Buchalter is losing his goddamn mind. He's pissed. And Rubin is like, like, please, please don't do anything crazy. Like, I know this guy is a pain in the ass. I know that he's fucked with you. I know he betrayed you. But please don't do anything nuts. Like, I'm looking out for you. I want the best for you. You're going to get in trouble if you do anything to him. Please, please, please let me handle it. I will take care of it. So Max Rubin goes and he does everything he can to smooth over the situation with Rosen. But at this point, the water has been muddied. There is no smoothing anything over. It's too far gone and Rosen cannot be appeased. There is nothing he can do. Rosen's going to talk. It's not a threat anymore. He's had it up to here and he's done and he's going, he has an appointment to sit down in Dewey's chair. He's going to rap. One Sunday morning on September 13th, 1936, Rosen was working in his candy store on Sutton Avenue. He didn't even really notice when a car rolled up to the front door. It was just business as usual. Cars rolled up. The car, a black two-door Chevrolet coach, had four people in it, and they opened fire on the candy shop. They caught Rosen multiple times. All in all, Rosen was shot 10 times. Police believe that the vehicle contained Mendy Weiss, Henry Strauss, James Farocco, 
and Philip Farvel Cohen. Remember Mendy Weiss? He was one of the people that killed Dutch Schultz. He's the one that left the dude to walk back to Brooklyn. So Mendy Weiss is a very trusted person in Murder, Inc., in the Jewish mafia. He's in on a lot of high-ranking shit. So now, the first time I did this episode, I was like, ugh, Buchalter is such a scumbag. He killed Rosen for talking to Dewey, and there's no record that he ever talked to him. He killed him for no reason. Poor Rosen. And that's because when you go online, everywhere online will tell you that Buchalter killed Rosen because he was going to talk to Dewey, but there was no record that he ever actually had talked to Dewey, which is the truth, but it is way too dumbed down. It doesn't mention the four or five different situations that led Buchalter to feel like he was forced to do this. So I was pissed the first time. I'm like, how could you go after somebody for talking when he never talked? But this is why. Because Rosen was running around and threatening him and acting like he had Louis Lepke Buchalter on a leash. And at that point, honestly, what are you going to do, man? He asked for it. If you didn't know that going up against like one of the best friends of Lucky Luciano and Albert Anastasio was a bad idea, maybe Darwinism came into play here. I'm just saying, Darwinism might have had a role in this murder. Even after he ran his mouth off and made promises that he was going to rat on Buchalter, Buchalter gave him not one, not two, but three chances to shut the fuck up. He opened a business for him. He sent people to that business when it wasn't garnering revenue. He paid him money to go away and stay somewhere for a while. And this man still goes on to say that he's going to rat and gets to the point of saying, there's nothing you can do at this point. I'm going to rat. So to Rosen, good freaking riddance, man. So now that's only one of the three murders that Buchalter is being pursued by Dewey for. So now we know the background on why he killed Rosen. Because if you look on Google, it's, oh, he killed this civilian. There was just a tiny little threat. No, that's why. That was some serious shit. And Buchalter had every reason to do this. So now Buchalter is on the run because he has three pending murder charges against him. And while he's on the run, Anastasia keeps Buchalter in hiding. On November 8th, 1936, Buchalter was convicted with Gura Shapiro for violating federal antitrust laws in the rabbit skin fur industry, which definitely has an impact on how I feel about Buchalter. Because if you watch my videos, you know I am the biggest animal lover that exists. So to see somebody that is torturing animals because rabbit fur, oh my God. And then to violate antitrust laws in that industry means that you're doing worse than the industry standard, which is terrible. But on the other hand, I want to say like, oh, the poor rabbits. And that's how I feel. It really is. But like, how many humans did he skin? <laughs> I kind of care more about the rabbits, but that's just because I'm a piece of shit and I care way more about animals than I do about people. So maybe my viewpoint is not one to be trusted because I'm way more upset about the rabbits. So Buchalter and Gura Shapiro, they were each given a two-year prison sentence, but these guys knew that the second that Dewey got them inside, he would just drop as many charges as he could on them, and they would end up getting the electric chair. 
So this isn't just a two-year sentence. This is two years while Dewey puts together a case that as they're walking out of this two years, they get locked up and they get the electric chair. They know what's coming for them. They were both granted bail and each of them ran. They were not about to go into prison. And Dewey put out a $5,000 reward for information leading to either of their capture. On April 14th, 1938, Shapiro surrendered. So now it's only Buchholzer on the run. On July 29th, 1939, the reward for Buchholzer's arrest was increased to $25,000. That reward would later be increased to $50,000. So they were not playing. They wanted this man. Dewey went public and he told the media about Buchholzer's body count. He told the media about Murder, Inc. He is doing everything he can to turn the public against the mafia because When you're on the run, you rely on the people around you. First of all, on people keeping their mouth shut. If you go to a gas station and somebody sees you at the gas station and you're on the top 10 most wanted by the FBI, if they think you're this glorious gangster, they're not going to call it in. But if they hate you, if they know about your body count, how many people you've killed, that you helped to create Murder, Inc., which has hundreds of bodies on it, they're a lot more likely to call the cops and say, hey, I saw Buchholzer at the gas station, and then the police know to search the perimeter. Buchholzer had Walter Winchell, a radio broadcaster that was well-known in New York, negotiate a surrender on his behalf to J. Edgar Hoover. So now Walter is going back and forth with J. Edgar Hoover. He's negotiating on his behalf. But during negotiations, all of a sudden, Buchholzer disappeared and stopped contacting everybody. And that made Hoover tell Winchell to put it on the radio that he has instructed his officers to shoot Buchholzer on site. So once Buchholzer disappears, Hoover is like, all right, let's get the message out to him. I don't want him alive anymore. I want his dead body. I want his head. And that was just to try to, like, scare Buchholzer out of hiding, because at this point, he went missing, negotiations have ceased, and he's kind of resorting to whatever tactic it takes. Buchholzer had one person outside of Anastasia and Winchell left in the world that he trusted. Only one. His name was Moe Dimples, a Saratoga numbers man who had been friends with him since he was a kid. Like, they had been tight forever. Dimples went to Buchalter and he's like, hey, bro, like I got good news. This is so awesome. If you surrender to Hoover, the feds are not going to turn you over to Dewey. So you can just do your federal time and then they're not going to allow Dewey to touch you. You do your federal time, you get out, Dewey goes away. He is not a problem anymore. Now, this is huge news. Buchalter knew that He was going to go in for two years. He was going to get additional charges put on him. And he would serve about 15 years for the charges that he had on the federal side. He knows that. But a stint in federal prison is nothing. He could do 15 years with his freaking eyes closed, with his hands tied on his back. It is no big deal to do 15 years of federal prison time. Nothing. Especially for a man in his position of power at that time. Think like Bernie Madoff prison, okay? This man is not going to prison. You ever see Goodfellas where they're having like that feast? That's the kind of prison he's looking at if he gets federal time. It was the charges on the side of the state that he had been worried about. 
Dewey was coming after him for murder. The state is where he could catch the electric chair. The federal government is just coming after him for fur stuff and like tax stuff. It was no big deal what the federal government was coming after him. Dewey was the one that was coming after him for violent crimes. Dewey was the only one that was in a position to try to give him the electric chair. So once Moe Dimples comes to him and he's like, hey, if you go do your federal time, they'll agree to just do the federal and not allow Dewey to prosecute. When Buchholzer hears this, he is excited to say the least. Despite Anastasia absolutely begging on his knees not to do it, Buchholzer surrendered himself on August 24th, 1939, and he surrendered himself directly to J. Edgar Hoover in front of a hotel in Manhattan. Like, J. Edgar Hoover literally got out of bed in the morning and went to pick up Buchholzer. So Buchholzer pulls up in front of the hotel in Manhattan. He sees Winchell, the guy that had been negotiating on his behalf, and he gets out of his car and gets into Winchell's car. As soon as he gets into Winchell's car, child lock brakes are put on so he can't get out of this car. And as soon as he gets into the car, Hoover gets into the car with them. Now, when Buchholzer turns around to Hoover and he's like, hey, like, I appreciate you getting me this deal where I don't have to go up against the state charges, only the federal. Hoover is like, the fuck are you talking about? He informs Buchholzer that Dimples had never worked out a deal with the feds. No negotiations had been done on his behalf. And when he finished his sentence in federal prison, he would most definitely face charges on the side of the state, and he was probably going to fry in the electric chair. I even saw it mentioned that Lucky Luciano had a part in tricking Buchalter to turn himself in. Something along the lines of Lucky had his friend lie to him and tell him that a deal had been negotiated, something like that. But I can't substantiate it. I only saw it in one place, so I wanted to mention it, but I didn't see it as like a fact, so I'm not 100% sure on it. But I did see it as Lucky Luciano was the one that set Buchalter up to get caught because he was bringing down a lot of heat. The authorities are going to come down hard on everybody that is not on the run to try to get to that person that's on the run. So according to this one source, it was Lucky that put it together where Buchalter would be tricked into surrendering himself. When Buchalter went to court for the federal charges, he was sentenced to 14 years in federal prison. And they didn't even wait until his full sentence was over to hand him to the state. While he sat in Leavenworth, he started answering for the charges on the side of the state, especially the murder of Rosen. The feds brought in Abe Rells, and we're going to talk about Abe Rells in a minute, but they bring Abe Rells in and his testimony led to the indictment on Buchalter, as well as an indictment on Frank Costello, Louis Capone, Pittsburgh Phil, and Happy Malone. Dewey ends up going after Buchalter while he's in prison for this racketeering thing on the federal side. Dewey goes after him, and while he's at Leavenworth Prison, he was tried for four murders and found guilty for all four of them. New York State took custody of him from the federal government, and he was moved to Sing Sing Prison on January 21st, 1944. Although Buchalter repeatedly pled for mercy, his pleas were rejected, and on March 4, 1944, Louis Lepke Buchalter was executed in the electric chair at Sing Sing Prison. And that's wild, because he got sentenced on January 21, 1944. 
He was killed March 4th, 1944. Not even two full months went by. There was no appeals process. It was just one judge, one jury that said, yeah, you're guilty, and he was dead. That was it. He had no final words. Two other members of Murder Incorporated were also executed minutes before Coulter. so he got to see that that happened before he died. So that is the wonderful story of Louis Lepke Buchholzer. And I'm going through, like, I wanted to do Dutch Schultz. I wanted to do Louis Lepke Buchholzer because they're all a part of Anastasia's story. Like, without telling these separate stories, because I haven't done episodes on them. I can't say, oh, I did an episode on Dutch Schultz. Go watch. I need to tell you who these guys are and how they're connected to be able to tell you about Albert Anastasia, honestly. Especially because Louis Lepke Buchholzer helped Anastasia for Murder, Inc. And a lot of the charges that he went down for and was in the electric chair for, they were also being levied against Anastasia. And we're going to talk about that when we go over Abe Rells in a minute. But that all is very intertwined with Anastasia. In 1936, Luciano was imprisoned for compulsory prostitution for 30 to 50 years. Now, Luciano, I have done an episode on, and I can refer you to if you want to know why he was put in prison for prostitution for 30 to 50 years, pretty much a life sentence. You could go check that out on my Lucky Luciano video. I'll link it in the description. Compulsory prostitution just means that instead of being a pimp for prostitutes, he was pimping the prostitutes against their will. So like there's prostitution where girls go to him and they're like, hey, I want to be a prostitute, get me paid. And he manages them. And then there's compulsory prostitution where he snatches girls off the streets and starts human trafficking bitches. Obviously, compulsory prostitution is way worse. And if you go watch the Lucky Luciano video, I go in detail into how they actually got him on these charges. It sounds like it probably wasn't even something he did, but most of the people go away for the one thing they didn't do. And the federal government doesn't care if you actually did that one thing because they're putting you away in their eyes for everything else you've ever done. And now he's sitting in prison and he's like, fuck, I'm done. 30 to 50 years, I'm done. I'm never going to take a breath of fresh air again a day in my life. I will never be free again. I'm done. However, the United States would soon get involved with a war that we now know as World War II. And Luciano was able to negotiate a deal with the U.S. Navy where he would help them with their war efforts. And in exchange, he would have a commutation of his sentence. And again, this is something I go very in-depth into in my Lucky Luciano video. While Luciano was in prison, Anastasia was his main point of contact. And he was the one outside doing all of his bidding for him. He would help with any missions that needed to be completed to help with the government, and that would help to get Luciano's sentence commuted. He would ensure that no dock worker strikes would ever happen during the war. Like, if they were about to happen, Anastasia was going to shut that shit down because... Everything staying under control was the only way that Luciano had any chance of getting out of prison in his life. Anastasia negotiated with the Navy on behalf of Luciano, and he would even get them connected with the Sicilian Mafia before the Allied invasion of Sicily, and even ended up sinking a ship of the Axis powers that were docked in the Brooklyn Harbor, which is crazy because... I personally had no idea that the Axis powers ever made their way to our shores during World War II. I totally thought that all the fighting was done in Germany. I know that there was some fighting in France. I had no idea that there was fighting in America. 
But the fact that he sunk an Axis power ship in the Brooklyn Harbor means we did have it on our shores. In 1942, with a large number of Murder, Inc. members being arrested, Anastasia, he saw it coming. Like, he was next. Like, it was coming for him. He was gonna be arrested. He escaped by joining the U.S. Army. He made it to technical sergeant, and he would supervise soldiers on duties as a longshoreman at Fort Indian Town Gap in Pennsylvania. At long last, he became a U.S. citizen on June 29, 1943, as a result of his service, and he was honorably discharged after the war was over. So he served in the army, he helped Luciano get anything done that he needed to get done, and helped America win World War II all at once. Like, World War II is why I like Anastasia and Luciano as much as I do, because it's so few people that know that Luciano and Anastasia had such a huge part of America winning the war. They were the ones that got in touch with Sicily and made sure that none of the soldiers fought the Allied powers as they made their way through Sicily and all of Italy. And that led to the Americans only having to fight the armies on the other side. They didn't have to fight the civilians, which was a huge, huge thing, because that's where a lot of people lose. I mean, look at the Ukraine right now. Most of the soldiers are just like citizens who picked up a weapon. And that's what would have been happening in Italy at the time. But because Anastasia and Luciano were able to put the Navy in touch with the people who led Italy and Sicily, who were mafia members, it helped pave the way through and they only had to fight the Axis armies, not the citizens. The fact that he became a U.S. citizen is huge for Anastasia because he had spent a long time trying to become a citizen. He applied for citizenship on March 2nd, 1929, and he finally got somewhere when he was issued a certificate of registry on June 19th, 1931. So two Two years later, he was finally issued a certificate of registry. However, they found the records that he had been arrested five times before filing his application for registry. And that's a pretty big deal because he had stated under oath that he had never been arrested or subject to a criminal or civil prosecution. So in other words, when they found these arrest records, it proved that not only did he lie on the paperwork when he said that he was never accused of a crime or arrested for a crime or anything, but it also proves that he lied under oath. So he took the stand in a courtroom and said under oath that he had never been convicted of or accused of any crime, civil or or criminal, and that was a lie. So that pretty much got rid of any chance that he was going to get citizenship in that round, and he had been working to get that certificate of registry for two years now. But he kept trucking through. On October 30th, 1931, he filed a declaration of intention. And on this round of paperwork, he disclosed that he had been arrested, but he makes a note on the paperwork that it was only a minor issue. The paper literally says he was convicted of a misdemeanor in 1923 for traffic tickets. Now we know he was given the death penalty. So while he wouldn't have to include that because the guilty verdict was overturned, that was still him being under investigation for a crime. Even though it was never him being found guilty, he was under investigation for a criminal crime. So him saying, oh, I only got a traffic ticket, complete lie. 
While the paperwork continued to be processed, he ended up giving an affidavit where he admitted that he had concealed his criminal record on the first round of paperwork, and on February 27, 1935, he filed a consent of dismissal of petition for naturalization. And this paper is pretty much just throwing the towel in and giving up on the idea of gaining citizenship at all. Filing this paper is legit like saying like, all right, just forget I ever tried. Like, fuck you. Sorry I tried. Won't happen again. That's exactly what that paper means. And he would only file that piece of paper after fighting for citizenship for six years. He started March 2nd, 1929, and he filed the consent of dismissal on February 27th, 1935. So for six years, he fought to gain citizenship. He would only file that consent of dismissal form if somebody came to him and was like, hey, bruh, like, hate to tell you this, but I'm going to be real with you. This just ain't going to happen. It's not going to happen for you. I'm sorry. Like, there's other things in the world, but becoming a U.S. citizen, that's just, it's not one of those things that are going to happen for you. So somebody had that hard talk with him, and he filed that paper. So the fact that eight years later, he was able to gain citizenship is a huge, huge landmark for him. So now he gets out of the army. He has no charges against him. He has no investigations against him. He has an honorable discharge. He is newly a citizen of the United States. He has no threat of being extradited back to Italy. And things are going great for him. When he got out of the military, he moved to New Jersey with his family. Luciano's sentence was commuted, thanks in large part to Anastasia's efforts, in 1945, and Luciano was immediately deported to Italy. So they pretty much said, like, all right, you don't got to spend the rest of your life in prison. We'll let you out, but there is no goddamn way in hell we are allowing you to stay free in America. We will let you out of jail, but get the fuck out of America and don't ever come back. Luciano and Anastasia, along with a small group of really close friends, shared a farewell dinner the night before Luciano left the U.S. And I think it's so sad like to think about that last dinner where everybody was just saying goodbye to one of their best friends that they had waited all this time to get out of jail. It's just sad. The idea of this dinner is just so sad. Like, imagine how somber that was, knowing that he was leaving, and there's a good chance most of them would never see him again. Now, we know that they do. You know, the Havana conference happens. There's a few conferences that happens that they do run into him. But at that time, there's a very real possibility to them that they're never going to see each other again. So it's just sad. Some of the hits that were ordered by Anastasia would gain new attention for him. They would gain national headlines, and it would cause some serious problems down the road. Moshi Morris Diamond, a Teamsters union official in Brooklyn, ended up standing in the way of Buchalter's garment district control. So Anastasia ordered him killed. And obviously, this is at the time where Buchalter is alive. Now, as I said in the beginning, I'm going to be jumping around on the timeline because I just have things where they belong. So like right now, that Moshi Morris Diamond, that murder happened while Buchalter was alive. So he was in the way of Buchalter gaining control of a union. Anastasia wasn't happy about that, so he had Diamond killed. He ordered Jack the Dandy Parisi to pull off the head against Diamond, and Parisi would later be tried and found not guilty of this murder. 
And that's not because he wasn't guilty. He was definitely guilty. He got off on a technicality. And when he was found not guilty, while the judge, because the judge always gives like a closing statement to like close court up. So after he was found not guilty, the judge threw in there that he was convinced that Parisi had done the murder. He just couldn't jail him for it. So everybody knew he did it, but there was one little technicality. It's like picture evidence being mishandled and your fingerprint is proven to be on it because there was a break in the chain of custody. They couldn't do anything, but it was loud and clear to everybody involved that it was Parisi that killed him. Diamond was a 53-year-old high-ranking union member of Teamsters Local 138, International Brotherhood of Teamsters and Chauffeurs and AFL Association, and he was an immigrant from Poland. He immigrated 25 years earlier, and he lived with his friend, Joseph Hatfield. He was shot five times on the street, less than one block from his home. So he got up in the morning, he got ready to go to work, he got in the car, he got a block down the road, headed for the subway at 6.10 in the morning, and while he's at the stop sign at the end of his street, four men drove up in a maroon-colored sedan. One got out of the car, fired five shots, and hit him with every single one of those shots in the upper body. So... The person that shot, which we know is Parisi, has very good aim because if you shoot five shots and you're aiming center mass, so chest, face, head, anywhere, and you hit five times, that's some damn good aim. Parisi hit him five times, hopped back in the car, and they took off leaving Diamond's body at the corner. Diamond did not die right then and there. They were able to get him to a hospital, but he died an hour later at the hospital. Immediately following this murder, police believed that it was carried out by a fellow union member who were pissed that he had testified on behalf of Dewey. Now, when this comes out in the newspapers, because the next day they're like, oh shit, Diamond died. And they announce like, well, people think that it's because he had testified for Dewey and we think it was another union member. And as soon as that newspaper article comes out, New York officials immediately come out and they deny that he had ever been a witness or so much as talked to Dewey. But since the rumor was strong enough to make it to the newspaper that he had talked to Dewey, I'm guessing that that had a very, very big part of why this hit was carried out. Because even if he was standing in the way of Bucalter's control of a union, that usually isn't a reason to kill somebody. But knowing that somebody's about to sit down with Dewey, that is a reason to kill somebody. So more than likely, the FBI chalked it up to, oh, he was in the way of business. No, he was about to rat, and that's why they took him out. Peter Panto, an activist with the ILA, which the ILA is International Longshoremen Association, so it's the union for the longshoremen. So Peter Panto is an activist for the ILA, and he is organizing union chapters, and they're fighting for democratic reforms Pretty much what he wants is he wants a better life for the workers in the ILA union. And he would not be intimidated by threats. At the time, Anastasia is not president of the union yet. He's just there. 
The president of the ILA was currently Joe Ryan. Anastasia was the head of the ILA Local 1814, but not the president of the ILA just yet. It's like brigades in the army, okay? So, like, you have a brigade, and then under that, you have a battalion, and then under the battalion, you have companies, and it's the same thing here. So, here, you have the ILA at the very top, and then under the ILA, you have individual unions. Anastasia was leading Local 1814, so it's one of the individual unions, but the ILA as a whole has a president, and he does become the president of the ILA later, but he is not at this time. The murder of Peter Panto was never officially solved, but everybody knows it was Anastasia. Like, it's common knowledge. Now, after he died, they went looking into who Peter Panto was and why somebody would want to have him killed. While they're looking into him, it appears that he had close ties with an organization that had split off from the ILA. And I'm not 100% on this, but the way that I'm understanding it is that, you know, like whenever a cult is started, they usually start out in a religion, but they're too radical for that religion. So they go off and they form a little cult and they say that they are a new religion. They are the direct link to God. And they're kind of forming like their own like little religion over there. Well, that's what's going on here. So these guys are all members of the ILA but the ILA isn't good enough and they're too radical for the ILA. So they leave the ILA. Now the ILA is the International Longshoremen's Association and that's where everybody belongs to. It's the only Longshoremen Association union that exists. But apparently the ILA isn't doing a very good job of protecting the people that are in this union. In 1934, there is massive strikes taking place all over the place, and they're demanding improved working conditions, union democracy, and racial solidarity because individual backgrounds are treated very badly. Honestly, at this time, it probably has a lot to do with Italians. At the time, you could go into stores and it would say, help wanted, Italians need not apply. And it's nothing, don't get me wrong, it is nothing compared to like the way that African-Americans were treated in America. However, because the Longshoremen Association is so closely tied with organized crime, I'm willing to bet that these strikes and the calls for racial solidarity, I guarantee you it's because the Italians are being discriminated against. Also, there's probably some Irish in there because Irish were treated very badly at a certain point too. So it could be any of them. But because it's the Longshoremen Association and it's so well known for being a part of organized crime and a lot of mafia members are in it, I'm willing to bet it was Italians. So now all of these crazy strikes are going on at the ports. Everybody has an issue and the ILA is failing to listen. And because the ILA isn't listening, a man named Harry Bridges comes out and he is like, yeah, fuck this. Like, if the ILA is not going to listen, why are we in the ILA? Like, let's be out of here. So he leaves and he splits off and he forms his own little religion. And he forms the ILWU or the International Longshoremen and Warehouse Union. The ILWU took every single local of the ILA's Pacific Coast District and switched them over to the ILWU. 
all but three made the jump. So the Pacific Coast is the West Coast of the United States. So California, Washington, all those states. So pretty much what I'm saying here is that from the very north to the very south of the western border of the United States has X amount of unions along the coast of longshoremen. As I said, the longshoremen only had one union, and it was the ILA. So now the ILWU steps in, and they say, okay, so now we're going to be a union, and we're going to be different. We're going to be better than the ILA. And every single chapter on the west coast of the United States left the ILA and went over to the ILWU. That could have been thousands of unions that jumped ship and left the ILA. Now, if you Google the ILWU now, it'll tell you that they had a communist viewpoint. And I don't believe that. I think that during this time, communism was just the dirtiest word that you could say. It's like calling a woman a witch during the Salem witch trials. It's a very broad and generic term, but the word itself carries so much weight and so much negative connotation that you don't even have to prove somebody. You used to be able to look at a woman and if she sneezed wrong, you call her a witch and she is burning at the stake. And that's what's going on here. Everybody that does anything that somebody doesn't agree with is a communist. And once they get that badge of communism, they will never shake it again. And the ILWU isn't doing anything crazy. It's not communism to want better working conditions and want everybody of every race to get paid the same amount or to not want to be breaking bones and having people die every day because it's dangerous work sites. It's not communism, but it was called communism back then because that was just a really scary bad word that they could use. It just seems like this Harry Bridges that formed the ILWU, he's fighting against the wild shit that is going on at the shores. To start, the way that the ILA hired people, it's kind of the way that undocumented immigrants used to be hired in the 90s. I don't know if they still do it, but I know it went on in the 90s, that they would go to a specific location and there would be people that needed jobs completed and they would show up in the morning and they would choose, okay, you, 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 and you get in the truck. I'll pay you $100 a day. And that's how everybody got their work for the day. That means that you could show up to this location every single day for weeks or months and not get chosen and not make any money and not feed your family. And the way that they justified it for modern day, like in the 90s, was, well, they are undocumented. They don't have a license. They can't work legally in the United States. And that's true. But in order to be in a union, you have to be a citizen. So all the people back then that are working like this, they're all citizens. There's no excuse for why somebody could go such a long time without making a paycheck and putting food on their family's table. There's no justification for it happening now, let's be honest. There's no justification for it ever happening. But the way that the government gets away with it was just, oh, well, they don't have a license, so we can't guarantee their working conditions. And, you know, pretty much what they did was just they started arresting the people that were hiring them instead of trying to work to better the system. So on top of this super unsteady way of making money, they're facing mandatory salary kickbacks 
which means that on the rare occasion that they get chosen to go work and they go make money, they're paid out and they have to immediately turn around and give X amount to the person that gave them the job. Let's say the job pays $100 for the day. You have to now get that $100 handed to you, turn around and give 20 of it to the person that hired you as a thank you for hiring you. On top of all of that, the docks are a very, very dangerous place to work. It's a daily occurrence that there's a work-related injury, and it's over issues that are being caused by the docks themselves. An example is on a dock, there's like three slots that are broken out, and people are carrying heavy shit on this dock, and they're falling into the broken slats and breaking their legs and breaking their ankles and going down into the water. Like, this is dangerous stuff. While they're carrying around 100-pound bags on their shoulders, and nobody's making any effort to fix the slat. It's like, oh, just make sure you step over it. That's dangerous. In addition to all of this shitty stuff that's going on, they also have the great knowledge that every single person that's running their company is in organized crime and making millions upon millions of dollars. They know that all of the higher-ups, even if they're not in organized crime, they're kicking back to organized crime. Albert Anastasia is a very well-known mafioso, and he's running Local 1814. His brother, Anthony, is another high-ranking member in there, and Panto got continual visits from the mafia threatening him to drop this fight for workers' rights. So it's not hidden that the mafia is very embedded in this union. And Panto just refused. He said, no, I'm going to fight. I'm going to work to get better rights for the people that are in these unions, and I'm not going to stop. You're not going to scare me out of it. So the ILWU pops up, and now the ILA is obviously pissed. So, like, in the chaos of all the strikes and everything that's going on at the shore, Peter Panto starts to pop up under Henry. He's close with the ILWU. They're starting to see his name, his face, a lot more. He's really close with the organizers of the ILWU, and he's leading attacks on the racketeers and forming his own really close relationships with the employers, trying to get the employers to hire from the ILWU instead of the ILA. And that is really pissing off the ILA. Like, okay, yeah, they know that the ILWU exists, but at this point, it's shitty enough that it exists. They took a lot of their unions and their workers, so they're pissed that the ILWU exists in the first place. But until you get to the point that employers are choosing not to hire the ILA and instead choosing to hire the ILWU, it doesn't really mean shit. The ILWU doesn't mean anything. They're not dangerous. They're not a threat. They're not thought of as anything. It's just a way that they lost a lot of their employees. But look at the way they treat their employees. They'll replace them. They're not worried about them. But now you get into the territory of these jobs that hire the unions to get their jobs done, you know, taking off the merchandise from the boats. Now, the boats that are coming in, these boats are choosing to hire the ILWU instead of the ILA because they have Peter Panto 
who's getting closer with the people who are hiring. So now that is why Peter Panto is such a problem for the ILA. He's not just creating these unions that are pretty much fake from the standpoint of the ILA. Like the ILA went such a long time being a monopoly and the only union on the block for the longshoremen. So when the ILWU pops up, they are very much so viewed as like fake and just like, just ignore them. They'll go away eventually. But when Peter Panto steps in and he starts taking money off the table and food off the plates of the ILA, that is the first financial attack on the ILA that has ever hit them where it hurts in their pockets. Now, despite repeated attempts over and over and over again, everybody tried to get Panto to back down, but he was determined to be on the front lines of this fight, fighting for the rights of the workers in the ILWU union and even in the ILA union. Just because they went off and started the ILWU doesn't mean they weren't still fighting for the rights of the workers that were in the ILA union. They were. There really just wasn't anything they could do. They couldn't change it, so they made their own. But they're still striking and trying to protect the workers of the ILA. After being repeatedly begged and warned and pleaded with everything over and over and over again, and Panto is continuing to ignore it, despite constant and repeated attempts to make him back down, make him surrender, make him get off the front lines of this fight, Panto continued to fight on the front lines. And on Friday, July 14th, 1939, Panto left his apartment on his way to an appointment with a couple of men. He went missing and he was never seen alive again. His body was found on a farm in Lyndhurst, New Jersey on January 29th, 1941, when Abe Rells led the FBI directly to his grave. In the article announcing that they had found Peter Panto's body, they named suspects as Albert Anastasio, he had definitely switched his name by now to Anastasia, but they just did not give a fuck. They also listed Emmanuel Mendy Weiss and James Dizzy Ferracho, associates of Louis Lepke Bucalter, racketeer chieftain. Weiss and Ferracho are also listed as being wanted for first-degree murder charges in the slaying of Joseph Rosen, the candy shop owner that we talked about earlier that got killed. So... Once again, I know I've said it multiple times, but I'm sorry for being all over the place in terms of a timeline here. I'm telling you about how people died, and then I'm telling you stories about when they were alive. So I wanted Dutch Schultz, all of his information to be kept together. I wanted all of Louis Lepke Buchalter's information to be kept together. I wanted the ILA to be kept together. So it's kind of impossible to put it into numerical order because it doesn't flow. So instead of going through a timeline where I was like, okay, on this date, this happened, this date, this happened. And then I'm going through three, four different topics, but I'm going according to the date. I just cut it up and I'm just trying to let you guys know who's alive and who's not alive anymore at the point that I'm talking about at that moment. So let me know if you guys are super confused or if this is a bad way to do it, because this is not the way I usually do it. Typically, I will just go through the timeline and I don't care if I'm jumping from three or four different topics. But for this one, there's so much information that I needed to narrow it down and lump it in by subject. So Peter Panto was buried in an unmarked grave at St. Charles Cemetery. And they did this because they were really concerned that Albert Anastasia 
or some of his men or some people that may be unhappy with what he did when he was alive were going to desecrate Panto's resting place. So they gave him an unmarked grave, regardless of all the assistance and help and amazing things he did for workers on the Longshoremen's Union, and he gave his life for it. But he was given an unmarked grave so some dirtbags wouldn't fuck with it. Like, I don't like that. I also don't think that Anastasia would have done that because, like, yeah, Anastasia liked killing people, but I don't see any stories about him, like, chopping up bodies and doing weird shit with it. Like, usually when you see people that have body counts this high, you hear crazy shit that they do with the bodies. Think about Roy DeMeo. Think about Kuklinski. Think about Mad Sam. They all do nasty, weird shit with the bodies. But that's not Albert Anastasia. His body count is probably higher than all three of theirs. And I don't hear anywhere that he's, like, going around and slashing shit up. So I think it's more about the kill. I don't think that he would have gone after Peter Panto's resting place. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe if it became, like, a meeting place for people that were striking against his union, maybe. But I I just personally don't see it. I don't think he would have done that. But the fuck do I know? In February of 2022, the John D. Calandra Italian-American Institute of Queens College, CUNY, issued a plea to the public to help finance an official resting place for Panto with a headstone. The listed cost of this was $7,450, and I couldn't find any information on if it was ever done. I just saw the plea for help with costs, but yeah, I don't like that this guy doesn't have a marked grave. That's messed up. Especially like he was killed in a brutal way. I don't know. I just don't like it. On the other hand, it's not like his death came out of nowhere. He knew it was coming. He was really close friends with a man named Emil Camarada. Camarada was the vice president of the ILA, and he was super, super close with Vincent Mangano. And it was the relationship between Mangano and Camarada that led Mangano and his family to controlling the Manhattan and Brooklyn waterfronts. This is during the time that Mangano is in power. He's the boss of the family. So the relationship between Mangano and Camarada, it's solid. So when Mangano is hearing whispers that Peter Panto is about to be whacked, he's definitely going to Camarada and like, bruh, like your your dude's about to lose his life. You might want to do something like there was no shock. He was waiting for it. But I also feel like a lot of the time these union guys walk around like they are holier than thou and they don't have to listen to anybody. They're too good to bother taking time out of their day to listen to you. Like, think about Jimmy Hoffa. Same exact thing. Union guy, super high in the union. Everybody warned him over and over and over and over again. And he just wanted to be a fucking stubborn asshole. And look where it got you. Still haven't found your goddamn grave, have they? Anastasia stayed on the waterfront for a really long time, but eventually he did leave and go focus more on his activities with Murder, Inc. and being a mafia boss. He just didn't have time to be, like, shoveling cargo from one place to another, especially after bootlegging ended. At this time, Anthony Tough Tony Anastasio, yes, it's O, he never changed his name, he kept it until the day he died. Tough Tony Anastasio became the president in 1932, and it's not a coincidence that 1932 is right around the corner when Prohibition ended. So Anastasia, he got word Prohibition's ending soon, his role of 
being a middleman in bootlegging is not really so much necessary on the waterfront anymore. He can go put more of his energy into mafia dealings and murder ink and everything that he needed to do. So he left Tough Tony in charge of the Brooklyn waterfront. He did that because Anastasia always stayed close to his brother. And he didn't want to lose control of the waterfront. So instead of just leaving and losing control, he left his brother in charge and still maintained control because of how tight they were. Tough Tony would often settle disputes with the scare tactic of being like, oh, okay, okay, maybe I'll go talk to my brother Albert about this. And like by that time, Albert had gained such a reputation for being so brutal and killing so many people. Whenever he said that sentence... Any dispute that's going on or any issue that's going on, it's immediately squashed because nobody wants him to go to his brother, Albert, and anybody would just acquiesce to him. Like, cool, you win. I'm not trying. I don't want that smoke, bro. Tough Tony took the position that Anastasia had occupied, and he became one of the family's largest earners and made millions and millions of dollars for the family in kickbacks and payoffs. He did all of this while making no effort whatsoever to conceal his mafia ties. And he made it clear the entire time that if people wondered where they had heard his last name, like, oh, your last name sounds familiar. Not exactly. I can't put a T to it, but it sounds familiar that Albert Anastasia was, in fact, his brother and they were, in fact, close and Albert would, in fact, kill for him. Okay, so let's get into the last issue we're going to go over for this episode, and then we're going to wrap it up, and then next episode will be the last one on Albert Anastasia. It'll close it up, because this one is very long already, okay? I know this is going to be like a two-hour long video, so we're going to wrap it up. We are going to talk about Abe Rells. Abe Rells was a talent scout in Brooklyn, and he had been sending men to murder Inc. for... 10 years. When he was arrested, it was a very real possibility that he was going to get the electric chair, and he did not want it. In order to evade the death penalty, he agreed to testify against Murder, Inc. members. Seven members of Murder, Incorporated were convicted of murders that they had committed while working under Murder, Inc., and that's all from Rells, and Rells knew a whole lot more than that. He had information that would implicate Albert Anastasia in the murders of Morris Diamond and Peter Panto. So Anastasia put a $100,000 contract on his head. Now, remember, he put a $100,000 hit on his head, but this is in 1944. If Anastasia had put a hit on Abrels today and it had the same value as the 100000 that he put in 1944, he would have to put a contract for $1.7 million on Abrell's head. So you could tell by the amount that this means a lot. Abrell's can do some serious freaking damage. That boy is dangerous, and Anastasia wants him. And it's not just for him either. He has a lot of information that can take down a lot of people. I mentioned before... Abrels has information that could take down Frank Costello, all the Jewish members of Murder, Inc., probably even Lucky Luciano himself. Rells was the one that had implicated Buchalter on the four murders, and that was how Buchalter was proven guilty. And this day, today, I'm talking the day that all of this goes down, Abrels was scheduled to testify against Albert Anastasia in court. 
and to swear under oath that Anastasia had committed all these murders and had a part in the murders of Morris Diamond and Peter Panto. If Abe Rouse took one step onto that stand, Anastasia could kiss his freedom goodbye for the rest of his life. He would have been put to death. His testimony also led to Louis Capone and Mendy Weiss being found guilty in the murder of Joseph Rosen, the candy store owner that I talked about before. So he's just out here taking people down everywhere he can. He is giving no fucks about all the people that he is putting on death row. Anthony Romeo, a Murder Inc. member who had been arrested and questioned about Panto's murder, so he's wrapped up in that kind of stuff as well, was also killed at Anastasia's request. His body was found in Delaware with signs of a beating and just a few bullet holes in it. And that's yet another body that Abrels can tie to Anastasia. Louis Lepke Buchalter, Capone, and Weiss were all put to death in Sing Sing Prison on March 4th, 1944. Frank the Dasher, Abandando, Harry Happy Malone, and Harry Pittsburgh Phil Strauss all had been found guilty of the murder of George Rudnick. And Martin Bugsy Goldstein had been found guilty of the murder of Irving Piggy Feinstein. Pittsburgh Phil Strauss was also guilty on this one as well. All seven men were executed in prison, thanks in no small part to Abe Rells and his testimony. Now, Rells is testifying. He's having people put to death. There's super important people that he's testifying against. So this man is being watched like a hawk. He has armed guards around him 24-7 despite the fact that he had armed guards everywhere, was being watched like a hawk and was about to go on trial to put Albert Anastasia in jail that day. He was found 42 feet below the window of the hotel room where six policemen were supposed to be protecting him. A grand jury would later find that this was an accident, but officials believed that it was a murder. And obviously it was a murder. Don't be stupid. However, they did find two bedsheets tied together and lashed to a heating duct. So this little moron took two bedsheets, tied them together, took a piece of wire, tied the wire to the bedsheets, and then tied the wire to a heating duct in the hotel. The wire that had been tying everything together, a piece of that wire was found next to Rels' body. If it was a murder, it looks like Rells put together a little contraption and he tried to escape the room so that he didn't have to testify against Anastasia. And this little contraption that he put together would have been able to support 130 pounds, but fat ass was 160 pounds and it did not support him. And he plunged to his death. He's not really fat. I'm just joking. It's, he fell. He, it couldn't support him. After Rells died, Charges against Anastasia for the murder of Morris Diamond and Peter Panto were withdrawn. So literally, they were about to have him on the electric chair, and they had nothing when Rells died. Okay, that is where I'm going to stop, and I'm going to finish the rest of the episode in part three. Thanks so much for watching. I appreciate every single one of you that made it to the end of this episode. I know it's a long one, so if you made it all the way here, I know that you actually enjoy it. So thank you so much. Please don't forget to like, share, subscribe, follow, comment, do all the things, and I'll see you next week. Bye.